Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, those of you here in the sanctuary, as well as those joining us online or on the radio through KTCU, uh, please know that wherever you are right now, that we are glad that you are part of our worshiping community. Uh, as I've mentioned over the last several months, as we've been doing uh, digital worship, that our footprint has expanded, that we have people joining us online, not just here in Fort Worth, not just in Texas, but all over the United States. And so it is good for us to be together. We are thankful for the technology that allows us to be together even when we are apart. Now, before I begin this morning, I want to uh, share with you that yesterday here in the sanctuary, we had a funeral, a celebration of life for Alpha Shirey, who is a part of our choir for a number of years uh, and was the uh, late wife of Ron Shirey, who was the choir master here at University Christian Church for a number of years. Uh, they were uh, quite the dynamic duo, central part of the music ministry. And so as you can imagine yesterday, this woman whose life we celebrated, who had this profound love of music, that there were a lot of musical pieces, piano, organ, choir, all sorts of things. You know how that goes. Uh, you've heard the old story about I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. You know how that goes. I went to a funeral yesterday and a concert broke out. And the choir and the music ministry of University Christian Church never sounded better. The second thing that I want to say about that is I pride myself on doing a good sermon for every funeral that I do. But what I want to say publicly is I have never, I have never heard a more fitting and poignant and touching tribute as Reverend Shannon Moore gave for Alpha yesterday. It was absolutely fantastic and a wonderful tribute to an amazing woman. So we are in the midst of a series, as Kara mentioned a moment ago, talking about the leading causes of life. Now, we all know about the leading causes of death. There are heart disease and cancer and accidents, and the list goes on and on and on. But that list, as I mentioned last week, has changed a little bit in the last 18 months. In 2020, the third leading cause of death was COVID-19. And so, in the midst of this pandemic, with nearly 630,000 people here in the United States that have died, several here in our own congregation. To be honest with you, I'm tired of talking about death. I want to talk about life. It was Jesus himself who said, I came that they may have life and life abundantly to the fullest. That is the life that God intends for us to live, a life filled with vitality, with hope with wholeness, with health. And so over the next several weeks, we are looking at some of those factors, those leading causes of life. Today, we're going to look at connection, those relationships within our lives and, and how they give us meaning and how they help heal us physically, emotionally, spiritually. The text that we're going to hear this morning is from Genesis chapter 2. Uh, it is the second creation story, slightly different, more narrative than poetic as the first one is. You know, most of us oftentimes read those two creation stories in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and think that they're all part of the same narrative, but almost all scholars agree 
that they were written at different times to different people for different purposes. The name for God are different. The, uh, the, the, the order in which the days are ordered are different. And at the risk of oversimplifying this, perhaps one way to look at that is that Genesis 1, the first creation narrative, on the first day when God created the heavens and the earth, and on and on and on, talks about how creation was created, whereas Genesis 2 talks more about why and the importance of the connections and the relationships that we know. So I invite you to listen now to Genesis chapter 2. From the second chapter of Genesis, verses 4 through 9 and 18 through 23. We begin with verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was on the field, yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant in his sight and good for food, the tree of life in the midst of the garden and in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And verses 18 through 23, Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air, and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man named to the cattle, and to the birds of the air, and to the, every animal in the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as a partner. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone from my bones and flesh from my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of the man this was taken. Here ends the reading. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be to God. We are social creatures, are we not? The argument can be made from the text that we just heard that we were created that way. That God created the first human and said it's not good for this person to be alone. Created a companion that we might share life together. We are created to be social creatures. Some would say that life is only found in the extraordinary number of, of connections that we make with family, with friends, with 
faith members, with fellow citizens, the people that we live with, the people that we share life with. Connections are the breath of the air upon which our very lives depend. As such, we are built, created for human connection. Scientists will tell you that our brains can recognize someone that it met out of thousands of other non-familiar faces within a, a quarter of a second. This isn't necessarily somebody that we've dated, that we've spent a lot of time with, but just someone that we've seen before. How many of you have ever had one of those experiences where, where all of a sudden you see somebody across the room or in, a, in your class and you think, I, I know that person. I've seen them before. I don't know where. I don't know when. But I know that person. We were created. We are hardwired, built for connection. The brain is designed for human connection. Studies show that we are capable of only brief episodes of solitude, that all of human life depends on our social connections for each other. Ultimately, we need each other. We need our we need one another. Our lives depend on being connected, on being in relationship with one another. Scott Colglacier, who's one of my predecessors here at University of Christian Church, filled this pulpit for a number of years. He once said, relationships are intensely wonderful, interesting, and complex. Not to mention maddening, boring, unsettling, comforting, exciting, fulfilling, depressing, uplifting, and as always, yes, always mysterious. Scott always had a way with words, didn't he? He went on to say, we swim in them like water. We walk upon them like the earth. We breathe them in like air. We devour them like food. We want relationships. We need relationships. Now, there have been some in this world that have tried to avoid relationships, to, to live disconnected from this world, and they have discovered that it simply doesn't work. And more often than not, it does not end well. There was a book that came out a number of years ago written by John Krakauer, later turned into a movie that was directed by Sean Penn called Into the Wild, and it was a story of Christopher McCandless who was this fairly rich, privileged young man. He graduated with honors from Emory University in Atlanta. And about the time that he graduated and started getting out into the world, he discovered that the world was harsh and uncaring. And so he decides to, to go completely off the grid and sells pretty much everything that he had except his old beat-up Toyota Tercel. He gives away all of his trust fund to a charity, he doesn't tell his friends or his family where he's going. He just leaves and drives from Georgia all the way up to Alaska, and he just disappears. He ends up there where he decides he's going to live off the land. He lives out of an old abandoned school bus, and he hunts wild animals with his 22 caliber rifle, and he reads books, and he keeps a diary of his thoughts as he prepares to live his life in this new world. But after about four months, life becomes harder. As his supplies begin to run out, he realizes, he realizes that nature is also harsh and uncaring. I won't spoil the end for you, but at one point he writes in his journal, happiness is only real when it is shared. 
Happiness is only real when it's shared. He wasn't the first to do this. Of course, there was a a group of early Christians, a group of early Christians known as the Desert Fathers, whose practice of faith didn't include the coffee hour after church. Go figure. Back in the fourth century, I have a frog in my throat. I've been waiting for months to use that joke, by the way. (laughs) Back in the fourth century when Christianity was becoming the official religion of the Roman Empire, these desert fathers, they left the cities. They didn't like the mixture of religion and politics. They had a pretty clear indication of who ultimately was going to win out. And so they simply left. They started a movement. And some of those that became monks gathered in monasteries, but many, if not most, were solitaries. They would spend their days making baskets, collecting food, just seeking God without all of the trappings of society and human life. There was one by the name of Brother Arsenaeus who lived in the desert known as Seat in Egypt, And he decided that he was going to get farther and farther away from society. And he walked into the desert 32 miles and set up his camp there. But as people would come closer and closer, he would move farther and farther away. He always needed at least 32 miles in order to feel comfortable. But yet, even those monks who, who lived alone, who came together, would come together from time to time, and they would celebrate communion, and they would share a meal together, they would talk about life and faith, and they would pray for one another. And even if they lived 32 miles apart, they still remained in community. And that's because they realized that they needed one another. They needed one another, and they knew it. It was not a matter of physical need, though that was important too. But the deeper reason that they needed one another was to save them from the temptation of believing in their own self-sufficiency. Did you hear that? The reason that they needed each other was to help them, free them from the temptation in believing in their own self-sufficiency. You see, all the great wisdom traditions of the world recognize that the main impediment for living a life of meaning is to be self-absorbed, to think that the world revolves around us, that we are the center of the universe. Lillian Daniel is a pastor of a United Church of Christ church in Iowa. And a number of years ago, she wrote a book that takes on the whole spiritual but not religious crowd. You know who I'm talking about, right? Those people that are spiritual but not religious. They're Christian, but they're not a part of a church. In many ways, they are the fastest growing segment of the Christian tradition. Spiritual, but not religious. Now, Lillian, as a female pastor, uh, likes to wear a clerical collar. And as such, she oftentimes avoids flying or doesn't wear her collar when she's on a plane because inevitably, She despises the conversations that inevitably happen on an airplane when people find out that she's a pastor. Inevitably, and I will tell this from 
personal experience as well that when I encounter someone and tell them that I'm a pastor, that inevitably the first conversation they want to have, the reason they want to talk to me is to tell me why they no longer go to church. And inevitably, it always has something to do with how they see God in the sunsets and how they see God at the beach. You know who I'm talking about, right? She says this, Thank you for sharing, spiritual but not religious sunset person. You are now comfortably in the norm for self-centered American culture. Smack dab in the bland majority of people who find ancient religions dull but find themselves uniquely fascinating. (laughs) I had a conversation recently with one of these people, a spiritual person, but doesn't go to church. And he told me, Sundays, Sundays are my day. It's all about me. Here's the thing, becoming a Christian, growing and maturing in our faith, it's not a solo project. As I've said a number of times, faith is a team sport, not an individual competition. It's something that we do together. Who you become as a person of faith, it's up to all of us that we are all in this together. Rachel Held Evans says in her book, Searching for Sundays, being a Christian is something that we do together. I can't be a Christian by myself I need the church. You see, we need connections. We need people. We need relationships to help draw us out of ourselves, to remind ourselves that the world does not revolve around our belly button, that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. You see, the wisdom of the Desert Fathers tells us that the hardest spiritual work that we will ever engage is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And boy, do we love ourselves. To encounter another human being not as someone that you can use or change or fix or help or save or enroll or convince or control, but someone who can simply free you from the prison of yourself. And that's why all of the great religions have always gathered together in communities in order to make them work. And we gather together in congregations and covens and churches and umas, communities where, where teaching for that religion are tested and worked out, practiced, tried, where we come together with all of our questions and our doubts, our faults, and we make each other better. You see, we need other people, and not just to make us whole, but also to keep us healthy. Medical research now shows that, 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 that loneliness tends to make us more vulnerable to disease. And not only that, but patients who are connected can survive setbacks that would shatter those who are isolated and lonely. Maybe you could say it this way, that connection has a healing power. In Brene Brown's book, Braving the Wilderness, she says that being lonely affects the life of our expectancy, the length of our life expectancy, similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Did you hear that? 
Being lonely affects the length of our life expectancy at the same rate as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And I don't say that in order to freak anyone out, but to let you know that this longing that you feel, this desire that you have to be in a relationship, to connect with other people, that's real. It's legitimate. And I think that we have treated friendship, that relationships as some sort of a luxury for far too long. Connection isn't a luxury, it is a necessity. And I think we've learned that in the last year and a half in ways that we never met, in ways that we never understood in, in those times when we had to be in isolation, disconnected from those that were most important to us. We learned that in very real ways, that we don't just want it, that we need it. I think it was Brene who also told the story about a village where the women would all gather together and they would wash clothes together down by the river every day. Eventually, there in the village, they had running water, and eventually they had electricity, and soon after that, some of the women in the village got washing machines. But it was with the introduction to washing machines that there was this sudden outbreak of depression. And no one could figure out why. You see, it wasn't the washing machines in and of themselves. It was the absence of time spent doing things together. It wasn't the addition of technology. It was the subtraction of being in community, working together. So one of the leading causes of life is connection. And I think in some deep, profound way, we all know that. But the question needs to be asked, how connected are we? I have a friend, a colleague, who's been in ministry for over 50 years. And whenever someone would come to him, Whenever someone comes to him and asks, tells him that he's dealing with something, a struggle, they're dealing with a, an, an issue, they come for pastoral care, for counseling, he always asks them, do you have one person in your life, at least one person in your life, that you can share anything, your deepest, darkest secrets, your most shameful act, if you can share anything? with that person and trust and believe that you will be met and welcomed not with judgment by, but by grace. Do you have one person like that in your life? He said, in 50 years of ministry, I can count almost the number of people who said yes on one hand. What about you? Do you have someone in your life that you can share anything with and trust, believe, know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be welcomed and accepted, not with judgment, but by grace, most would say no. These are interesting times. And with the onslaught of social media technology that's designed to keep us connected to the world around us, but more and more studies are showing that social media is actually interfering with the good old-fashioned relationships, that creating virtual bonds doesn't take place of creating real ones. There was a sociologist that did a study that showed that even though we may friend more people on Facebook, that the number of truly close friends 
that people have has dropped, even though we are socializing as much as ever. I heard Barbara Brown Taylor talk one time that her image, her understanding, her metaphor for what life is like in this age is that people are going around digging shallow holes, that our connections may be broader, but they are not nearly as deep. There was an article in the Atlantic magazine a number of months ago that says, that asked if social media is making us lonely. It said this, it said, social media from Facebook to Twitter to Instagram have made us more densely networked than ever before, yet for all this connectivity, new research suggests that we have never been lonelier and that this loneliness is making us mentally and physically ill. Some are now suggesting that social media is actually interfering with our real relationships. It's distancing us from each other. It's making us more lonely and that that social network might be spreading the very isolation that it is designed to conquer. Let me ask you this. Have you ever walked into a room, a restaurant of some sort, and you see there in the corner a table, four, five, six, ten people, and yet none of them are talking to each other. They're all staring at their phones. Have you ever been to a, relation, to a restaurant and seen another couple there on a date, and one of them, if not both of them, instead of talking to their spouse, is talking to their phone? Someday I'll tell you the story about the time my wife almost got me beat up. We were at a restaurant and saw one of these couples. She was all dressed up. It was date night. She was excited to go out, you could tell. And he was staring at his phone the entire time. My wife, God bless her, decided to tell this young man that he was missing out on a wonderful relationship with this beautiful young woman that he is with. She was writing checks that my body couldn't cash. Someday I'll tell you that story, but not today. <laughs> there was another article that I discovered that discussed something that is rampant among many folks. It's caused by social media as people are more and more connected than ever. You've heard me talk about it. It's called FOMO, the fear of missing out. That we all live with this angst that something better is going on somewhere else. There's a better party. There's more interesting conversation. And that's why so many people are focused on their screens, preoccupied with the potential friends that they may have and not paying attention to the ones that we do. You see, I believe that deep down the real thing that we fear is not missing out. The real thing that we fear are those few long-term friendships that make life richer and fuller, that lead us to the life that God intends for us to live. And so what might happen if we are committed to being more intentional about being present with people? To practice community, to develop deep connections, to practice loving our neighbors as we love ourselves, to engage, to encounter people face-to-face, -face, entertaining the possibility that maybe, maybe that face that we are seeing is one of the faces of God. And so today, maybe today you go to the grocery store and you encounter the clerk. 
And I'm not saying that you have to invite her home to lunch, but look at her in the face when she tries to find arugula on the laminated list of produce. And simply ask her how her day is going. Look her in the eye. See not the cashier, but the person. Or maybe tonight you'll gather together around the dinner table and you'll turn off the TV and make the dinner table a no-phone zone. Or maybe tomorrow you'll call an old friend, someone that you've missed, and just let them know that you miss having them a part of your life and you miss being a part of theirs. You see, in the last year, in many ways, we have become so isolated that it's hard to know how to get that back. It's so hard to know how to even begin to build the kind of relationships that our hearts need. And I think now in our culture, it's not just as organic as it once was. It's more work. Because, you know, we have our own washing machines. We don't depend on each other to do laundry, to raise children, to cook dinner anymore. In fact, we don't really rely on anyone for much of anything, if we're being honest. But yet we are hardwired for connection. We were created to be connected, and we don't just want it, we need it. There is healing and wholeness in those connections. One of the leading causes of life, the life that God intends for us to live, one with abundance, with wholeness, with meaning, with purpose, that life God created us to live in connection with one another. You see, it's in those relationships with God and with each other that we discover not only who we are, but whose we are.